0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: The threat is known. Action has been taken.
2: The crisis is begun, and the people of America begin seven days of watching, waiting, wondering, hoping. The Cold War was an era of secrets, and only the superpowers could discover the biggest ones.
1: This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military build-up on the island of Cuba.
2: After US intelligence discovered missile sites on Cuba in 1962, tensions rose to an all-time high.
3: Again, high and low-level reconnaissance pilots emphasised individual skill and achievement. As they flew these important, historic missions.
2: But now, young men and women, with not much more than a laptop, can do the same job. How would the Cuban Missile Crisis have played out in the age of the internet and the wealth of data that comes with it? Would there even have been a crisis? Or might it have been even worse? Hello and welcome to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Shashank Joshi, The Economist's defence editor. This week we're exploring the democratisation of spying, open source intelligence. How has technology fueled the boom in
4: open source investigations? We have different resources with new social media platforms coming up. I mean, there's not many war crimes being documented on TikTok, but you know, it's still another stream of data. Who are the amateur sleuths solving these puzzles?
0: The open source intelligence ecosystem is like a Star Wars bar scene. And we'll ask former CIA
2: director John Brennan if open source information marks the end of secrecy.
1: I do think open source information does erode the monopoly that intelligence and security services have had on certain types of information and developments.
2: Over the last two decades, the field of open source intelligence has gone from a handful of curious individuals scouring newly available satellite imagery on the web to a powerful global force.
3: I started using open source before I even knew the term open source, when I became curious about a North Korean missile launch. My name is Melissa Hannum, and I am just a regular lady, and I opened up Google Earth back in 2004. And I found the site where the launch had taken place. At the time, I thought Google Earth was magic, that it was just like a a mirror reflecting what was happening in real time. But of course, it became a lot more complicated the more things I wanted to do.
2: Melissa Hannum went on to work as deputy director at the Open Nuclear Network, an NGO that aims to reduce the risks that nuclear weapons are used in error. She's now at Stanford University. Melissa's investigations of North Korea include exploring a Pyongyang biotech facility capable of making the bacteria that causes anthrax a fatal disease. Shortly after she published her findings, North Korea labelled her riffraff and a trickster. Much of Melissa's work involves satellites, but not just the satellites you might be thinking of.
3: So a lot of people, when they think of satellite imagery, they think of what you see in Google Maps or whatever type of mapping service you use. But there's a lot more to space-based sensors. And that's, to me, one of the two most exciting parts of satellite imagery right now. So one thing that has previously only been used by militaries is called synthetic aperture radar, or SAR. And instead of using sunlight, it's actually using an active signal that bounces from the space-based sensor onto the surface of the Earth once, maybe twice or three times, and then it goes back to the sensor. And that active signal, that bounce of the radar, does in effect make a measurement and an image that you can interpret It's a lot more confusing to look at than red, green, blue light because our eyes are used to that. But they false color images to help us understand what it looks like. The benefit is you don't have to rely on the sun being up so you can see nighttime images. It pierces clouds, so particularly in the cloudy valleys of China, And Southeast Asia, you would be able to see through some of that weather. And then perhaps even most excitingly, you can see uh, heavy trafficked roads in dusty, dirty kind of areas like in the Middle East, India, India. And you can also see through the roofs of some thin roofing materials like tarps, tents, fiberglass roofs, unless they've been painted specifically with a radar reflecting material.
2: That's that's incredible. So could you just give us an example of how open source researchers have used that to find cool things?
3: Sure. So, my colleague Allison Pocioni, who's worked in the field as a classified intelligence analyst as well as an open source analyst, discovered that North Korea had been preparing its rocket for launch from the Sohei Launch Facility. And because the roofing material on the top of the rocket launch stand that's mobile was made of uh, some kind of thin material, probably fiberglass, she could see that they were stacking the rocket ahead of time, So even though they had built that building and the train railway was covered all to hide this activity, she was still able to see the preparation ahead of time. Another thing that can be exciting, uh, another colleague of mine, former boss, Jeffrey Lewis, and I worked with Airbus to look through missile deployments in uh, Russia. And we could see that even though they had painted their temporary installations with radar-reflecting material, because they had large garage doors that rolled up, we could see sideways into the building a little bit. Not see everything inside the building, but we could see inside a bit.
2: For others, it's the smartphone revolution, a sensor in every pocket, that has fueled an interest in open source
4: intelligence. It really started, I think, with the launch of the iPhone back in kind of 2007, 2008, which then led to the development of lots of apps, in particular social media apps, which meant more people were kind of sharing images and thoughts and comments in real time with the entire world. I'm Elliot Higgins, I'm the founder of Bellingcat and currently the executive director. Cat is an organization that is known for online open source investigations. So that's using online publicly available material to investigate a range of topics from the first big story we did, which was the downing of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, um, up to more recently looking into Russian assassinations, plus a whole range of topics in between. Alongside that, you also had the development of social media platforms and social media sharing platforms where it was image-based, like Panoramio, for example, which had geotagged images, which gave us reference images. We also had things like Street View start appearing from Google, and uh, also satellite imagery being made available from various sources. So those two elements combined really kind of provided the material needed to do the open source investigations. And then in 2011, I think the Arab Spring really became the kind of big catalyst for the development of the entire movement. And it's really something that's kind of just grown from there and gained more and more recognition as time has gone on. And with that growth, handy new tools have emerged. Some of them simple, some of them incredibly sophisticated. We have like a big toolbox. One is reverse image search, something that's become increasingly available through things like Google image search. More and more, you're also finding facial recognition being part of some of these search engines and specific platforms being created for facial recognition searches. And it isn't just pictures. Maybe you have a fitness tracker on your wrist. Well, it might be giving away more than you realise. There's been big data leaks from exercise apps that have related to kind of military security, where we've discovered online you can find people's exercise routes that they've done, and it's actually public. But some of these end up being around patches of desert in the middle of nowhere in kind of the Middle East, and it becomes very clear that these are military people running around the edge of their base or something like that. You can track very important people from their home to where they work on a regular basis because they keep taking the same jogging route, and obviously that presents a security risk to them. And if you work with state secret,
2: like the location of nuclear missiles, then it's worth being extra careful with the apps on
4: your smartphone. We've also found recently we we're looking into these flashcard apps that you can get you know, to teach yourself various things. And one thing people have been teaching themselves were the security details of nuclear bases they were working at. So US nuclear bases where the soldiers were basically using these apps to make notes about stuff where the camera positions, the code words they should be using, you know, different levels of security, basically everything you would need if you wanted to break in the base and get access to those nuclear. The weapons. So people do tend to overshare quite a bit without realising it. Internet sleuths like Elliot
2: Higgins and Melissa Hannum aren't the people you might expect to find working for traditional intelligence agencies like MI6 or the CIA. Elliot started as a blogger who enjoyed spotting weapons in YouTube videos from Syria. Melissa described herself as a regular lady who just got really into exploring the unknown on Google Earth, The amateur investigator who recently discovered missile silos in China is an undergraduate. So who are these people and why do they do these investigations?
3: Information is power. It's a cliche, but it's true. And governments had the monopoly on this power. But the real takeaway to me is that the world is becoming more transparent. And I think companies, governments all have to take note that there are citizen scientists who can verify with real-time evidence, be it from a satellite or from ground photos or even trading on stock markets or other types of data, that your story needs to check out now. You have to be accountable to the public. And in modern democracies, that's a great thing. Um, but it's a bigger hardship for countries that don't want the truth to come out.
0: The open source intelligence ecosystem is like a Star Wars bar scene.
2: Amy Ziegert is a political scientist who studies intelligence at Stanford University.
0: It's filled with everybody you can think of. Volunteers, profiteers, amateurs, experts, activists, hobbyists, truth seekers, and deception peddlers. So anybody can play in this space.
2: This makes open source intelligence amazingly democratic. But there are also risks associated with amateurs doing all the investigating.
0: One of the things we often see in this world is that people think that they can read satellite imagery very easily. It turns out understanding what's in an image when it's taken from overhead is really an art form and it requires extensive training. So errors are pretty easy to generate in the open source intelligence world. And of course, no one gets fired if they make a mistake because most people in this world are volunteers. That's very different if you're in the US government.
2: There are some famous examples of mistakes like this in recent memory. After the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013, the open source community scoured the web to find the perpetrators.
0: After the Boston Marathon bombing, for example, uh, many people online wanted to help crack the case and figure out who was responsible, and they wrongly accused a number of people. So it became sort of a vigilante mob online, pointing fingers at people who turned out to be completely innocent.
4: Recently, we've seen with the community that kind of grew around the January 6th violence in Washington, D.C. Elliot Higgins again. That was a group that some of the work they did was really good and actually seems to have been quite essential for the FBI and law enforcement to identify some of the suspects. But there have been, again, misidentifications in that. Elliot Higgins is all too
2: aware of the risk of misidentification and his organisation, Bellingcat, takes measures
4: to avoid this. We like to use crowdsourcing at Bell & Count. We'd like to use our big audience to ask them a question, you know, what is this object or, you know, where is its location? But that only really works well with a large audience when you're asking quite straightforward questions, like, you know can you identify this object, as we do with the uh, Europol tracing objects stop child abuse campaign, where Europol have asked the public to identify objects from child abuse imagery. And we've kind of amplified that and done some of the work on that ourselves. But if you start giving a complex problem to a lot of people, that's when you start having kind of the group things start happening and people make wrong assumptions and you have people who are inexperienced dealing with something that's complicated. So for us, when we're dealing with something that's complicated like that, we keep it in a much smaller team and more internally. Perhaps an underlying limitation to open source intelligence
2: is the expectation that techniques like this will solve a crime. Usually they won't,
4: but they are a useful tool. What you do with open source investigation is you're saying, based off the information that's available, this is our best understanding of what's happened, and these are where we have gaps in our knowledge. And you can be very clear and transparent about that, and the hope is then as well that other people will see that, the detail you've provided, the links to the videos, the evidence, and they can actually take that and use that for their own work and develop it even further. Coming up,
2: what impact do open source investigations have on the intelligence community? Do they have the power to change statecraft for good?
0: source intelligence has been a part of intelligence forever.
2: Amy Ziegert again.
0: In the Cold War, roughly 80% of information in a typical intelligence report actually came from open information, not secrets. And so the value that intelligence agencies have historically played is marrying that open source intelligence with the documents stolen from the prime minister's safe or the intercepted telephone communication. But what's happened today is that open source intelligence is now foundational. It's not just that you sprinkle it on top. And because there's so much data, tools that can sift through vast reams of information like artificial intelligence algorithms are much more valuable than they used to be before.
2: Amy Ziegert warns that open source intelligence can speed up the pace at which crises evolve, and it increases the number of players.
0: Imagine the Cuban Missile Crisis were being played out today on Twitter with all of these open-source sleuths actually figuring out that there were Soviet nuclear installations on the island of Cuba. Instead of 13 days, the president would have maybe 13 hours or 13 minutes to figure out what to do. And so it reduces the maneuverability of both sides in a conflict if information is fully transparent. Secrecy, in some ways, gets a bad rap. Secrecy provides room to manoeuvre, room to de-escalate, room for both sides to save face in a crisis.
2: The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was essentially resolved because very few people knew the facts. The Soviet Union agreed to remove its missiles on Cuba if America also removed its own missiles from Turkey, and America insisted that that be kept secret. If the world had known about the withdrawal of America's Jupiter missiles from Turkey, maybe the outcome would have been very different. So, do big, powerful states like America need to keep secrets?
0: Open source intelligence is dramatically democratising the ability of just about anybody to collect and analyse important information. And that's bad for the United States. It means that the United States is losing its relative intelligence edge.
1: Others disagree. If there was more open source information, publicly available satellite imagery, for instance, as well as more insight into what was happening coming across the Atlantic Ocean to Cuba, I could see that there would not have been that 11th hour crisis. John Brennan was the director of the CIA from 2013 to 2017. There would have been indications of the movement of those missiles earlier on And it might have, in fact, prevented them from getting set up and being actually operational. So I think that when I look back over the course of history, a number of events, whether it be the Cuban Missile Crisis, whether it be the Iraq WMD debacle, as well as some other historic events, um, the more publicly available information that is available to societies as well as to governments, it might have resulted in a better scenario evolving from the standpoint of being able to prevent uh, unnecessary wars as well as to divulge the truth despite what maybe some government officials or policymakers were telling their countries publicly.
2: In terms of the impact of all of this, how do you see this as affecting secrecy and and particularly the balance of power between the state and what one might have said was its monopoly on, on secrets and information and the public, including ordinary people who can discover some of the things that previously only state agencies could have done? Does this erode secrecy in a fundamental
1: way in your view? I do think open source information provides average citizens uh, much greater insight and perspective in terms of what's happening around the globe. And it does erode the monopoly that uh, nation states, especially intelligence and security services, have had on certain types of information and developments in their own country, as well as countries around the world. So can open
2: source intelligence eclipse secret intelligence as we know it? Do we still need spies? I believe
1: that secret intelligence will always be that invaluable ingredient in order to understand what is happening around the globe, especially in those areas that are in countries where there's a strong repression of information and where U.S. national security interests really are quite critical. And so therefore, I don't think open source is ever going to ...push secret intelligence off of the the table of the analyst. Uh, You really want to use intelligence systems... ...in order to collect information that is truly secret and important... ...and not available through any other means. Earlier this year, America's
2: Strategic Command... ...which is in charge of the country's nuclear weapons... ...warned that China was dramatically expanding its nuclear arsenal... Rumours circulated in Washington that China had built new silos for its intercontinental ballistic missiles. Experts were sceptical, but open-source hobbyists and researchers quickly applied themselves to this project. Satellite images have
0: revealed China has 100-plus new nuclear missile sites under construction. This could signal possible intentions by China to upgrade their nuclear arsenal
2: 120 missile silos were found to be under construction in the Gobi Desert... ...and more in a secluded part of Xinjiang.
1: This was the biggest build-up of silos since the Cold War. In the intelligence profession, there is a lot of information... ...that is collected through extremely sensitive means... ...whether it be sensitive technical collection systems or human assets. It's likely that American intelligence already knew about these sites and wanted them to be found and shown to the world. The fact that now some of this information, which was only available through clandestine collection means previously, is now openly available from public sources, uh, open source information. It allows governments, uh, it allows policymakers, to be able to release this information publicly, talk about it publicly, without putting at risk sensitive human sources or technical collection systems. America's State Department said the
2: discoveries were deeply concerning and demonstrated that China was deviating from its long-established nuclear strategy. It was able to point to open-source work to make its case without having to give up any classified intelligence. Other states, though, see open-source intelligence as a threat. Bellingcat, the organization founded and run by Elliot Higgins, has pitted itself against Russia on numerous occasions –
1: An open-source investigative team, Bellingcat, has revealed the identity of a Russian intelligence officer. He is believed to be connected to the downing of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 over occupied Donetsk region in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Bellingcat claims it's identified the second suspect linked by Britain to the poisoning of a former Russian spy and his daughter.
3: new investigation, meantime, has found that a group of Russian special agents followed opposition leader Alexei Navalny for years before he was poisoned. The report-
2: Last month, they were even called out in a press conference
4: by Russia's head of foreign intelligence. We get a lot of pushback now from Russia, and it's because over the years we've exposed quite a lot of wrongdoing by them. I mean, we've... we've- Done kind of MH 17 which showed their involvement and that then led us to uncover the involvement of Russia more broadly in the conflict in Ukraine. The work we've done on Syria, we've shown how they've been responsible for airstrikes on civilian targets with the assassination stuff, starting with the scripple poisoning. I mean, we've found I think now ten assassinations that are linked to Russian security services. So we are Certainly exposing stuff that they don't want to see. I mean, we've recently last year exposed the Nerve Agent program that's in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. And we know that our work is taken seriously by policymakers in a whole range of different organizations and bodies that Russia has membership of. And I think it does make them very uncomfortable that this information is getting out there and still getting out there. And I think the reaction of having the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service attacking Bellingcat and saying they've got a feeling that we're working with Western intelligence. And that kind of stuff is um, reflective of how much not only they're worried about us, but also how poor they've been at kind of making a good case against us. But they can never really present any evidence to support their feelings. How, how threatened do you feel by that
2: when you're name checked personally by Russian intelligence officers who have done some of the things that you've cataloged?
4: Does that worry you? I I think we've kind of feel like, you know, we can't annoy Russia any more than we already have, so we might as well just keep on publishing stuff. So, you know, we are concerned about our security and we've had cyber attacks against us and we have to be concerned about our physical security when we're traveling around. But we don't let it rule our life. We aren't like hiding indoors. And we are hiding indoors because of coronavirus, but not because of the uh, Russian assassins. But it's like if I travel now, if I go to a hotel, I won't eat food in the hotel just in case, because I don't know who's working there. So I'll go to the kind of local supermarket and just buy some really rubbish sandwiches to eat in the hotel rather than whatever's on the room service menu.
2: So given the risk to investigators and to states, can open source intelligence be regulated?
3: One of the things that I became aware of, the more technical and the more skilled I became is that there was information out there that made me concerned that if I provided it to the public, I might actually be helping an adversary.
2: Melissa Hannum again.
3: For me, the biggest concern is how do I prevent the spread of weapons of mass destruction further? We were looking at video footage of North Korean missile launches. And by slowing down the playback and looking at it, we were able to see some details that could perhaps explain why the missile kept failing. And although it's perhaps newsworthy, it's of interest to the public, we felt that we would not share that information because we didn't want North Korea to get to work fixing the missiles. Our group, open source, is is maybe not even fair to call it a group because it's thousands of individual actors and an occasional collective. So there are times when people don't agree (laughs) and what I would be very much interested in is creating a kind of code of ethics, a standard by which open source analysts can work, much like investigative journalists, for example. I think we may face some growing pains and I don't want to lose the public trust because of a few bad actors and what is a well-meaning and quite accomplished group of open source analysts.
2: It's important to make these decisions now as open-source intelligence isn't going anywhere.
1: I do think that in years past, there were efforts by the United States government, as well as other governments, to prevent the release of certain types of information that was being collected by companies and businesses, whether it be via satellites or other types of things. John Brennan again. But I do think it was basically putting fingers in the, in the dike that uh, these cracks were forming. And now I think that there is a recognition that you may be able to delay or limit what information is available. But ultimately, I do think much of this information that is now being accessed as a result of technology is going to find its way into the public domain.
4: So what does the future hold for open source intelligence? I think really when it comes to what happens next with open source investigation, it's not really tool based. Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat. They're still important, and there's always new tools being developed. And we have more access to satellite imagery, and we have different resources with new social media platforms coming up. I mean, there's not many war crimes being documented on TikTok, but you know, it's still another stream of data. But what I think the real developments are happening is in the area of accountability. The International Criminal Court has spent the last few years looking into the use of open source evidence. There's currently a trial in Berlin about an assassination that's using basically Bellingcat as the star witness there, using the evidence that we've gathered. So, I think the next real big development is answering the question of how do we use this kind of evidence in courts of justice and accountability. And I think we're very close to the answer. I think the only thing that's really preventing it is that the people who are answering those questions are organizations like Bellingcat, which are small organizations (laughs) and they're big questions. So, you know, the amount of resources and time we have slows down the process, but we are getting there. America has an open source center in the CIA
2: but some people think it needs an independent open-source intelligence agency, including Amy Ziegert, who remains optimistic about these kinds of investigations.
0: I think we live at a critical juncture in intelligence, and I think what we're going to see in the future is dramatic new capabilities to harness insight from enormous quantities of information. The amount of data on Earth is doubling about every two years, And if you think about intelligence as finding needles in haystacks, the haystacks now are everywhere and they're growing at an exponential rate. So whether it's 3D modeling of buildings or whether it's AI to try to understand thousands and thousands of satellite images that can capture what's going on on Earth in real time now, we're at the cusp of a revolution in information and the meaning that we can derive from information. Think about how much that opens up humans to be doing higher level thinking about what are the intentions of a foreign adversary, what could possibly be alternative explanations. So the more we have machines doing the counting or rudimentary things that take analysts a long time to do, the more it frees up humans to do what humans can do best.
2: Open source intelligence is a powerful tool. It means that you and I can discover things that would once have been the monopoly of the CIA or the KGB. Knowing things doesn't always stop them. Russia is still attempting assassinations. China hasn't dismantled its gulags. But open-source intelligence shines a light on those lies as never before. It makes the world a little bit more transparent and perhaps a little bit less dangerous. So, If you'd like to know something, if there are secrets you'd like to unearth, fire up Google Earth and happy hunting. Our thanks to Melissa Hannum, Elliot Higgins, Amy Ziegert and John Brennan. And thank you for listening to Babbage. To read my cover briefing in full, subscribe to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. The producers are Jason Hoskin and Amika Shortino-Nolan. The assistant producer is Abisoye Oshundairo. Sound design was by Nico Rofast and Carla Patella. Sandra Schmueli is the programme's editor. I'm Shashank Joshi, and in London, this is The Economist.